Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, March 25th, 2011. Isn't it comforting to know that there's less than two months before the end of the world? <laughs> You're going, what? Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that on today's program. It's time to uh, take a look at what Harold Camping is saying. We'll be talking about that. <laughs> Let me grab another swig of my decaf instant coffee. Ew, it's getting cold. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. You do not determine truth about God by your experiences. You do not determine truth about God using uh, fallacious hermeneutical methods such as allegory and bizarre things like that. You don't determine the truth regarding God using liver shivers, burning in your bosoms, or anything of the sort. What God has revealed in his word and what he intended to communicate in his word in context, historically, grammatically, is what is true about him. <clears throat> when you start uh, monkeying with the text in order to... Uh, come up with your own ideas, there's something seriously wrong. And so uh, we are covering uh, the slow-motion train wreck of American evangelicalism and evangelicalism around the world, if you would, here on this program as it slips further and further into just bizarro world. And uh, what's causing this and leading the charge? Really a, a bad catechesis, poor understanding of the Bible, not a proper distinction of law and gospel, a cult of celebrity and all kinds of bizarre things like that, weird things being done in the name of being missional and reaching the lost. Yeah, it, it, that, there's all kinds of problems in the church, and we uh, chronicle that here at this program on a daily basis, and we use the Bible as a corrective. <clears throat> Which means my assumption for you is is that you're you're digging into your Bible, and uh, you're following along, and uh, doing some of this discernment work yourself as well. And so, in fact, when you do that and you send me an email that shows that you've done really good discernment work, I'm really <clears throat> highly motivated to read your emails on the air along those lines. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's program. <clears throat> we're going to start off with a bizarre story. Um, <clears throat> You all familiar with uh, the different translations of the Bible that are coming out in English that are that are gender neutral and things of that nature? Well, apparently PETA, the the people for the ethical treatment of animals, 
Um, or people eating tasty animals is the way I like to look at it. But uh, PETA has, uh, has asked Bible scholars to come out with an animal-friendly version of the Bible. I am not kidding, and uh, we'll take a quick, brief look at that. Um, <clears throat> then we're going to take a look at Harold Camping. You know, here we are. It is March 25th, and if Harold Camping is right, well, we've got less than two months before the rapture. I mean, because he's pegged the rapture to um, May 21st of this year. And funny enough, I remember the last time Harold Camping made a prediction, and it was for 1994, sometime in September of 1994. And, well, last time I checked, we're all still here, and the rapture didn't happen back in September of 1994. Well, he's at it again, apparently thinking people have got short memories or assuring us that, well, he's resharpened his pencil. And this time, this time he's right, and that the church should be warning people about this. So if you're seeing billboards in your neck of the woods uh, declaring the end of the world coming up uh, you know, in May of uh, this year, if you're seeing uh, RVs uh, touring around your neck of the woods, uh, blowing through your city and causing a stir, decla- you know, declaring that the end of the world is coming, well, there's a lot of folks that listen to Harold Camping and are motivated to warn everybody about this, their pending doom. Now, granted, Christ is coming back, no doubt about it, but um, <clears throat> we're going to take a look at what's going on with this Harold Camping thing. And give you some reasons why you should doubt um, he's got the uh, the formula figured out. And then, if you all subscribe to Time Magazine, they've got a, a feature article running right now asking the question, did God have a wife? Yeah, it, it's it must be getting close to Easter. You know, it, it, I don't know what it is, but every year during Lent, okay, as we draw close to Easter... That's the time for the bizarre, crazy uh, articles to be written in major publications, newspapers, or magazines uh, that uh, are the latest and greatest annual. It's, a, it's an annual event, if you if you. It's almost like a sport. Um, <clears throat> you know, you think about you know we got baseball season coming up. Uh, it's uh, questionable as to whether or not there will actually be a football season uh, this fall in the United States of America. Now, I know those of you listening abroad think football is soccer. We call it soccer. We we actually, I understand, we have it wrong here in the United States. Football is actually what we call soccer. Yeah, keep keep in mind though, I, I swim in the American water, so yeah, um, yeah, so I get it. Yeah, I got it. But uh, what we call football here, the National Football League in the United States, is well, you know the. The union and the owners, they're just not talking. Things are not going well. So it's iffy as to whether or not we're even going to have a season this year. But every year during Lent, it's 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 the can we overthrow Christianity season in, in the media. And so a few uh, few years ago, we had uh, the oh, – what was it? Guy, the guy who did the uh, – uh, the, t- the movie Titanic, James Cameron. He, uh, you know, he, he and uh, – Shimka Yakubovich, uh, they you know had this run up to try to you know basically claim that uh, you know they they found the bone box of Jesus, the ossuary of Jesus, and uh, and you know it, 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 over and over and over again, this time of the year is the time when you try to overthrow uh, the God of the Bible uh, in the media because uh, you know Easter's right around the corner, and the last thing you want to have is a crucified and risen Lord and Savior proving that He's God because. <laughs> That kind of changes everything. So this year, the uh, it looks like the uh, the argument's going to take the shape of uh, n- nasty uh, male chauvinist uh, pigs. Uh, yeah, those 
those uh, evil patristic writers, you know, the, the, those guys who were who thought that men own the world, uh, have suppressed and edited out of the Bible the the fact that God had a wife, and apparently God was married to Asherah. I'm not sure if they're still married, uh, um, or if they've become a statistic. You know, it's it's you know it's kind of sad to think that, uh, you know based upon the fact that there's so much silence regarding um, God's marriage to Asherah that, you know, that maybe this match made in heaven didn't last. <sighs> Man, I, you, you got to joke about it because it's just silly. And I'll, I'll give you the easy way that you can easily overthrow this. And it doesn't take, take much mental knowledge at all. It doesn't take much understanding at all to overthrow this one. Um, and then I, I keep threatening to get to Tim Challey's article called New Evangelical Virtues. <clears throat> I may not get to it today. Well, it just all depends. If I don't get to it today, sometime next week for sure. But uh, And then our second hour, uh, I want to warn you ahead of time. Um, <clears throat> the sermon review that I'm going to be – the sermon I'm going to be reviewing is from Brick City Community Church in Sanford, North Carolina, Pastor Bill May presiding – he just recently uh, concluded an entire sermon series, and I'm not joking. The name of the sermon series is "That's Effed Up." And you're going, did you? Yeah, yeah, I know. I that. Yes, we're going to be reviewing the first sermon in the series, entitled "All Effed Up," and I have to warn you that the, I'm going to not edit this sermon, and here's the reason why: is because. This sermon is supposed to be a sermon, and it was preached in a Christian church, and it was published on a church's website. Therefore, technically, that you know, you would think, therefore, if the pastor there thought that this was appropriate material for the church at large to consume, he wouldn't have put it out on the web. That being the case, I have to warn you that um, this is not a sermon for little ears. Um, and there are things that this pastor says that are just is outright crazy and unbelievable uh, behavior or language coming from a man who is a pastor, and I'm not going to bleep it out. And the reason why is because I don't broadcast on the FCC. I don't have a, I don't have to have some kind of a license that requires me to bleep out particular words or anything like that. No, you're hearing this. Most of you are hearing this via podcast, and even those of you who are listening via live streaming. Um, the Live 365 radio network does not require uh, Pirate Christian Radio to bleep out particular words. That being the case, the best thing I can tell you is is that this sermon review falls under the category known as explicit. That's all I got to say. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, to, and I hold this out as an example of what's going wrong in the Christian church. Now, if you think that this is an isolated incident, it isn't. In fact, Bill May is not creative here at all. In fact, Stephen Furtick was the first pastor that I'm aware of to use a sermon series title even remotely similar to this. A while back, he did a sermon series entitled F-Bomb. And uh, now there's other pastors who are following suit and doing the same thing. And this is what's being pushed into the mainstream of the seeker-driven movement. And this is all done in the name of evangelism. And you'll hear that at the beginning of the sermon if you decide to actually listen to it. So just yeah, <clears throat> all I can say is um, bendy straws, duct tape, and a helmet are, are definitely in order. In fact, I should probably play 
our Fighting for the Faith warning, especially because today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is just that crazy. So here we go. Warning. Fighting for the Faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. All right. Sing along. I wonder if I should try that high note. You know, I don't even want to stop the song because I like it. I've, like, sidetracked myself. All right, all right, I gotta kill the music. That's the Tokens and their uh, famous song, The Lions, The Lion Sleeps Tonight. And all of that is to uh, lead into <clears throat> this story uh, from. The uh, website for the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, also known as uh, People Eating Tasty Animals, PETA, um, they, PETA asked for animal-friendly update to the Bible. This is a press release that they <laughs> sent out on the 22nd of this month um, in uh, <clears throat> Norfolk, Virginia. After hearing about the latest translation of the new international version of the Bible, which uses gender-inclusive language, such as he or she instead of he... The uh, people for the uh, people eating tasty animals has written to the committee on Bible translation to suggest that its next translation also remove speciest language. That's speciesist language by referring to animals as he or she instead of it. <clears throat> so, um, if you are, if yeah, see the the problem here is is that. If you refer to an animal as it, uh, you're not seeing it as your equal. Therefore, um, you're dehumanizing the animal, and therefore, you, you they don't want you referring to animals as its. Uh, no, you you must refer to them on an equal playing field, using the same pronouns that you would use for other animals in the uh, human 
in the in the in the in the world. You don't want to be a specious. And you're thinking, what's a specious? Well, a specious is somebody who believes that the human species is greater than or more superior than the other species on the planet. <clears throat> so, in the letter, uh, the uh, people eating tasty animals point out that uh, many modern writers are using he, she, and who in place of the inaccurate it and which to refer to an animal. Quote, updating the Bible's language regarding animals would not only reflect modern writing trends, but also reinforce the idea that animals are living beings valued by God, not inanimate objects, says People for the Eating of Tasting Animals Vice President Bruce Friedrich. Quote, Jesus taught us the importance of mercy and compassion, and this update would encourage mercy and compassion for all of God's creatures, including those who have feathers, fins, and fur. have no commentary <clears throat> none whatsoever i mean here's the deal um well here's the idea if you're going to open up you know the bible to you know we've got to change the bible to make it conform with our sensibilities yeah we got to be politically correct not just to you know whatever pick your uh, your particular liberal agenda is now we've got to be politically correct towards animals because the last thing you want to do is use the neuter words, the neuter plo, uh, the neural, uh, the neuter pronouns to refer to animals because that could reinforce a negative species mentality. You know, I you just can't make this stuff up. Moving along from. Um, ABC 30 News. Um, here, here, listen. Since the beginning of time, people have made end-of-the-world predictions, but the days have come and gone, and the so-called end-of-the-world has not materialized. The predictions are as frequent today as they've always been. Action News anchor Liz Harrison explores why the human spirit wants to know when the end will come. of the Mayan calendar believe the world as we know it will end in 2012. What exactly will happen on that day, no one knows. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam also teach the world will end someday, in some cases a violent and cataclysmic end. Christians point to the Bible as their predictor of the end times. According to the book of Revelation, their savior, Jesus Christ, will return to earth on judgment day. He will take his followers with him to heaven in what is called the rapture. And then at God's appointed time, the earth will be destroyed in what's called Armageddon. In April of 2009, Pastor Will Stoll of Fresno's Northwest Church announced to the congregation that he believed Judgment Day would come before he was buried in the ground. 
Jesus wants you to know and me to know that he's coming back soon. I'm looking for his return. Uh, that means that if I don't get hit by a car, you know, on the way out of here and or a truck or something big, uh, I think so. Um, based on the fact that the Bible says that Jesus is coming back soon and um, just based on the signs of the times around us. Billboards around Fresno this fall advertised a seminar called Decoding the Signs, asking drivers, what does your future hold? The Clovis Adventist Church taught nightly seminars about signs of the end of the world. And so as we think about deception in the last days, what, how do we distinguish between truth and error? But this Christian radio host from Oakland says he knows the exact date of Jesus' return. I'm so sure of it. This is Harold Camping. I'm, I'm sticking my neck out every night. Harold Camping is 89 years old. Five nights a week, he hosts a live broadcast on family radio. It's heard all over the country and is rebroadcast on television. His words are translated into 56 languages worldwide. Camping bases his end times prediction on 70 years of biblical study. He's developed a mathematical system to interpret prophecies hidden in the Bible. Did you catch that? He's developed a mathematical system for... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, kind of figuring out hidden prophecies in the Bible. Uh, you, you can read into that uh, numerology, if you would. We continue. A few years ago, the UC Berkeley-trained engineer crunched the numbers and calculated the world would end May 21st, 2011. He says those who believe in Jesus Christ will be raptured then. Those left behind will face complete devastation. There's going to be a great earthquake such as never been. It'll be so great that all the tombs everywhere in the world are going to be thrown open. That's going to require a granddaddy earthquake. This is not his first end of times prediction. Harold Camping also predicted Judgment Day would come September 6, 1994. Yes, he did, and it didn't happen. But this time he says he's positive it will be in May. Right, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> What's that story again about the little kid who cried wolf? Mm -hmm. And just to prepare, he's sending out lots of RVs like this one across the country just to get his message out. Not all of Camping's 125 employees at Family Radio believe his prediction, but most do. Oh, yes, I'm sure it sounds outrageous probably to most people, but I believe that um, there is going to be an end of the world, and I believe that the Bible is teaching us that we are at that time. Tim Geddert teaches the New Testament at Fresno Pacific University, and he's a student of biblical prophecy. So far, everybody who's guessed the date's been wrong, so I don't give that much credence to the one who sets the date for May 2011 or December 2012. Geddert says the interest in the end of the world stems from human hope. I think there's a genuine longing for a better world. Harold Camping believes there is a better world, and he believes he will be there next May 21st. Liz Harrison, ABC 30 Action News. And there you go. So, um, yeah, let me play uh, another news story. Um, this one from the Reading area, again from an ABC affiliate. Here, here we go. Predictions of the end of the world have come and gone. You might have seen the latest one in the North State this past week. Four vans touring Reading and Chico with Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011, plastered on the sides of them. I had to find out more.
that's the deadly serious message of this group from Family Radio based in Oakland. A four-van caravan has been making its way down the West Coast, stopping in Redding and Chico the past few days with a group of 10 believers spreading the word of the founder, Harold Camping, that by his biblical calculations, Judgment Day is next May 21st, with the destruction of the world to follow shortly after. They've been driving around shopping malls and other busy areas, stopping to hand out tracts. It begs the question, should I stop paying my mortgage, stop doing my car payments? Uh, ultimately, it could leave all the way to, you know, anarchy. Like, who cares what you do if the world's going to end next May? Continue paying your mortgage and your, your, your debt, your credit card bills, and uh, be the uh, example that God would have us to be as, as uh, true believers. And for the first time since 1954, the Giants are world champions. This was too much for a Giants fan to pass up. Does this mean that the Giants would be the World Series champions for eternity? Well, the, the uh, New York Giants, which is now the San Francisco Giants, uh, will be the final uh, 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 world champions of, of baseball, yes. You see that, see, that alone should absolutely prove that there's no way the end of the world is on May 21st of 2011. Everybody knows that it's the Dodgers who are going to be the World Series champions into eternity. I mean, this is just heresy. So we got that going for us. This is hardly the first prediction of the end of the world. Of course, your hope might be that this isn't the last. If this doesn't happen, on May 22nd, 2011, if I call you on the phone, will you answer and say, whoops? Well, that question has been asked many times, and I'm sure that, that we're not the first to uh, get that question because... Um, I'm quite positive that the same question was asked of Noah, and all those who asked that question perished for unbelief. Did you hear that? i, I got to back this up, because there's something I'm going to point out to you after the break. Uh, from Harold Camping's own materials that is published on the Internet, I want you to listen to this guy's response to the question. Here we go again. Of course, um... I'm quite positive that the same question was asked of Noah, and all those who asked that question perished for unbelief. Everybody who asked the question perished for unbelief. Keep that thought tucked away in your brain. In fact, you know what? I'm going to just pause right there. I want to keep this here. i got to, I got to take a moment to pay some bills, and uh, when we come back, we're going to uh, delve a little bit further into the Herald Camping prophecy or prediction of the end of the world for May 21st, 2011, uh, you know, coming up. Um, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Switching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build a God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful all at the same time. Okay, then... Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Get me the mall security? Thank you. <laughs> Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. <laughs> yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. <laughs> yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, 100% of every prediction ever predicted about the end of the world has proven to not actually be the case. Every single prediction has failed. 100% of them, wrong. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you 
as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, something I want to point out to you, and this is the, <clears throat> this is one of the easiest ways you can know this Harold Camping thing is wrong. Let me back up just a smidge here, and I want you to hear this Harold Camping follower being questioned about the end of the world, and you know, well, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And here's what he says, and I'll then read to you something from uh, Harold Camping's own website, which I downloaded today and took a read. And wanted to point out to you, listen again. On May 22nd, 2011, if I call you on the phone, will you answer and say, whoops? Well, that question has been asked many times. And I'm sure that that we're not the first to uh, get that question because um, I'm quite positive that the same question was asked of Noah. And all those who asked that question perished for unbelief. All those who asked the question perished because of unbelief. So now you're thinking, what are you keying in on, Chris? Okay. Well, today I went to the website youcanknow.com. Youcanknow.com. And it's a, a website that was put up by Family Radio. And there's, there's downloadable documents that you can download. And the name, one of the names of the uh, documents that they have available for download is a pamphlet that you can print out on your printer. It's a PDF that you can download, and it prints out perfectly on a, on a legal-sized piece of paper. And the name of the document is No Man Knows the Day or the Hour. And basically, the argument is goes something along these lines. The Bible says that no man knows the day or the hour, but there in the book of Daniel, there's this thing that's sealed up until the very end. And so Harold Camping's argument is that you can actually know, as, as we get closer and closer to the end, that secret information that's been sealed up since the time of Daniel will be unveiled and that... Christians will be able to know uh, when the end is going to come because that information that's been bound up will be, you know, that has been basically sealed, will be unsealed at the time of the end. And Harold Camping claims using his numerological methods to have come up with that. But it gets even more interesting because at the tail end of this pamphlet comes this statement in the section entitled, The Thief Comes in the Night. This is from the pamphlet I downloaded from Harold Camping's own website. The name of the, the pamphlet is No Man Knows the Day or the Hour. At the very end, it says this. The thief comes in the night. Christ and Judgment Day come in the night. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3, Christ tells us, quote, When they shall say peace and, and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Okay. Because destruction comes upon them, we can know for certain that these people are not saved. Being unsaved, they are in a they are in spiritual darkness. They are in the night. Judgment day is coming for them as a thief 
in the night, yet they believe they are at peace with God and safely under his care. Who are these people? The language of this verse describes perfectly all those who, all those in the world who on May 21st, 2011 are still identified with any, uh, who are still identified with any church. Because churches teach many things that are not true to the Bible, they are now under the judgment of God. 1 Peter 4.17 he cites. Therefore, according to the warning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 1 through 4, we must sadly realize that they are not saved. Remember, churches teach their members, one, they as confessing members of their church are safely in Christ's care, and two, no man can know the day or hour of Christ's return. Therefore, they are certain that Christ will come as a thief in the night. These dear people do not realize at all that they themselves are in spiritual nighttime, a condition that guarantees that when Christ comes, they themselves will be destroyed in the day of judgment. How awful. It is the true believers who know the time, the hour, and much mo- and much about judgment day, the day. They are not in nighttime of spiritual darkness. Remember, God is very, very merciful and loving. There is hope for anyone who humbly cries, who begs and beseeches God that they may too they too might become saved. So here's the idea. The reason why the Herald Campingites, the people who listen to him on family radio, are going around and warning everybody is so that people will not be in spiritual darkness. But it's not just enough for you to know the day or the hour. You're not saved unless you believe that that's the day. And worse, the the way you know that you're not saved is because you're part of a church. Harold Camping is calling people to leave their churches and to trust in his biblical way of understanding the Bible. And if you're a part of the church, of any church, and any church is telling you that you're safely in the care of Jesus, but they're not telling you that Jesus is coming again on May 21st of 2011, well, then you're still still in spiritual darkness. And according to their twisted uh, reading of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that means you are not saved. Does that sound at all like biblical Christianity? Answer, no. Not at all. So it doesn't matter what church you're a part of. If you're part of any church, you got to get out. you got to get out of that church. And you have to believe that God, that Jesus is returning on the 21st of May or you're not saved. That's a different gospel, folks. We are saved by trusting in Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So that no one may boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. They've, they've got a new gospel. If you don't believe that Christ is returning on May 21st, 2011, and you're still part of a church, you're not saved. You're in spiritual darkness. You're not saved by whether or not you believe Jesus is returning on the 21st of May. And when you read 1 Thessalonians 5 in, 1 Thessalonians 5 in context, it doesn't teach that. 
This is a different gospel. This is exactly how I know that what Harold Camping is teaching is patently false. And I can guarantee that Jesus will not be returning on May 21st, 2011. And I can also guarantee that you're not saved by believing that he does, or he will. In fact, if you are saying that you're not saved unless you believe Jesus is returning on May 21st, 2011, that's a different gospel. And different gospels are the types of things that actually condemn and curse and damn people. So, yeah, if you just spend a little bit of time... You know, with what these people believe, then you realize Harold Camping, he ain't teaching a biblical gospel. He's teaching something completely different. This has more the ring of a cult than it does the biblical truth. Listen again to this Campingite talking to this ABC reporter. Listen again. If this doesn't happen, on May 22nd, 2011, if I call you on the phone, will you answer and say, whoops? Well, that question has been asked many times. And I'm sure that that we're not the first to uh, get that question because um, I'm quite positive that the same question was asked of Noah, and all those who asked that question perished for unbelief. Yeah, and the reason he answered the question that way is because Harold Camping is teaching that unless you believe that Jesus is returning on May 21st, Jesus will come as a thief in the night and you will perish. That's a different gospel, folks. That ain't the biblical gospel. And that's not what we're called to believe in to be saved. We're called to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. His shed blood on the cross. Or as the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, what I received I passed on as of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the gospel. The gospel is not believe that Jesus is returning on May 21st. The gospel is trust in Christ, believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That he was that he died on the cross, shed his blood for you in your place and was raised again on the third day for your justification. The campingites are teaching a different gospel. And that's what's going on here. What's motivating these people? They don't believe that they're saved unless they believe Jesus is returning on that day. So, yeah, yeah, that's all the more reason to not believe them at all. This is something completely foreign to the Scriptures. All right, moving along. Um, I better play our uh, news update music here. From Time Magazine, headline reads, Fertility goddess Ashira was God's wife edited out of the, edited out of the Bible? All right, um, let's see here. Uh, do I have a byline? Yeah, by Christy Choi. Christy Choi uh, from uh, Time, the Time, uh, Time Magazine website. <clears throat> a British scholar claims that God may have had a wife. Some, yeah, and, and here's the sad part. Uh, apparently, since you know God, you know, since Yahweh hasn't been talking with about Ashura and has really condemned her, it really doesn't sound like the marriage that it lasted. So. Very sad. Very, you know, the, the match made in heaven apparently didn't last. So, um, a British scholar claims that God may have had a wife. Some scholars say early versions of the Bible featured Asherah, a powerful fertility goddess, who may have been God's wife. <laughs> this sounds like another Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code esque type of conspiracy theory. <clears throat> Researcher Francesca 
Oh boy, I'm going to mess up this name. St- uh, uh, Stavrakopoulou. Yeah. Why don't we just call her Francesca Pulu? <laughs> we'll just call her Francesca. Uh, research by Francesca. Um, a senior lecturer in the Department of Theology and Religion at the University of Exeter unearthed clues to her identity. This would be the wife of God. Uh, but good luck finding mention of her in the Bible. If, uh, if uh, Francesca is right, heavy-handed male editors of the text all but removed her from the sacred book. Now, I want to point something out to you. This has all the hallmarks of an ideology, not actually scholarly research. Here's why, okay? Is that in this case, she's making the claim that heavy-handed male editors of the text removed uh, God's wife from the sacred text. And you go, okay, well, can you show me early copies of the Old Testament that featured her as God's wife? Well, no, I can't. How come? Well, because heavy-handed male editors took her out. Well, how do you know that? Well, because my theory says that uh, that uh, you know that the stuff I found in the dirt um, proved that uh, there were people who were worshiping Yahweh and Asherah. Therefore, God and God and Asherah must have been truly actually married. You know, they're, 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 and so they, I know this is the case. Therefore, they must have taken it out. But there's no evidence that 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 Asherah was taken out of the Bible. I know, but the fact that there is no evidence that she was taken out of the Bible actually proves that she was. Taken out of the Bible, right? Okay, yeah. This uh, already we've got problems, uh, you know, because there's there's a there's a um, a feature to the story which makes it so that if you question it, it has to be prove it has to be true because of the fact of, because of the lack of evidence. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what remains of God's purported other half are clues in ancient texts, amulets and figurines unearthed primarily in an ancient Canaanite coastal city, now in modern-day Syria. Listen again to where this was found. An ancient Canaanite coastal city, now in modern-day Syria. Inscriptions on pottery found in the Sinai Desert also show Yahweh and Asherah were worshipped as a pair, and a passage in the Book of Kings mentioned the goddess as being housed in the Temple of Yahweh. J. Edward Wright, president of the Arizona Center for Judaic Studies at the Albright Institute for Archaeological Research, mentioned Yahweh and his Asherah. He adds, Asherah was not entirely edited out, out of the Bible by its male editors. Traces of her remain, and based on these on those traces, we can reconstruct her role in the religions of the Southern Levant, he told Discovery News. Ashura, he says, was an important deity in the ancient Near East, known for her might and nurturing qualities. She was also known by several other names, including Astarte and Istar. But in English, uh, but English translations, Ashura was translated as sacred tree. This seems to be in part driven by a modern desire, clearly inspired by biblical narratives, to hide Ashura behind a veil once again. Wright says. Conspiracy theories, oh no. Aaron Brody, a director of Bade Museum and associate professor of Bible and archaeology at the Pacific School of Religion, says the ancient Israelites were polytheists with only a small majority worshiping God alone. He says it was, it was the exiling of an elite community within Judea and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. that led to a more universal vision of strict monotheism. 
Now, the uh, the story then links us to its source from Discovery News, okay? Yeah, you think of the Discovery Channel. The Discovery Channel is the is the group who's responsible for the whole lost tomb of Jesus thing that happened a few years ago. So let me read a little bit from the Discovery Channel website, and you'll get a little bit more as to what's going on here and how you can easily, easily, easily... Did I mention easily debunk this? I mean, this is this is this is just bad scholarship. I mean, bad archaeology, bad scholarship, just bad conclusions that cannot be supported really at all. Anyway, um, uh, um, this is by Jen- Jennifer Viegas. The name of the story is "God's Wife Edited Out of the Bible." Almost. This is from the Discovery uh, News uh, news.discovery.com website. It reads, God had a wife, Asherah, whom the books of, book of Kings suggests was worshipped alongside Yahweh in his temple in Israel, according to an Oxford scholar. In 1967, Raphael Patai was the first historian to mention that the ancient Israelites worshipped both Yahweh and Asherah. The theory has gained new prominence due to the research of Francesca Stavrakapulibuya, whatever, who began, <laughs> I cannot pronounce her name. Stavrakapulu, Stavrakapulu, okay, who began her work at Oxford and is now a senior lecturer at the Department of Theology and Religion at the University of Exeter. Information presented in Stavrakapulu's books, lectures, and journal papers has become the basis of a three-part documentary series now airing in Europe where she discusses the Yahweh-Ashira connection. Quote, you might know him as Yahweh, Allah, or God, but it, but on this fact, Jews, Muslims, and Christians, the people of the great Abrahamic religions are agreed. There is only one of him, writes Strav Rakapulu in a statement released to the British media. Quote, he is a solitary figure, a single universal creator, not one God among many, or so we like to believe. After years of research specializing in the history and religion of Israel, however, I have come to a colorful and what could seem to some uncomfortable conclusion that God had a wife, she added. Strav Rakapulu bases her theory on ancient texts, amulets, and figurines unearthed primarily in the ancient Canaanite coastal city called Ugarit, now modern-day Syria. All of these artifacts reveal that Asherah was a powerful fertility goddess. Asherah's connection to Yahweh, according to Strav Rakapulu, was spelled out in both the Bible and an 8th century B.C. inscription on pottery found in the Sinai Desert at the site called Kan. Tiliat Ajurd. Quote, the inscription is a petition for a blessing, she shares. Crucially, the inscription asked for a blessing from Yahweh and his Asherah. Here was evidence that presented Yahweh and Asherah as a divine pair. And now, and now a handful of similar inscriptions have since been found, all of which helped to strengthen the case that the God of the Bible once had a wife. <clears throat> okay, now, here's the easy thing to do. First of all, where was this inscription and in the you know, where was this? Where's this? These amulets found in a Canaanite city. Okay, the Canaanites were the ones who worshipped Asherah. Second, where do they date back to? Answer: Eighth century B.C. 
What time does that put us at in the history of Israel? Answer, it puts us in the time of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah. Okay? And what do we know was happening in the time of Isaiah the prophet? Answer, read Isaiah. Isaiah is so clear that what he was called to do was call Israel back from their idolatry, back to the true worship of God. What were the children of Israel, what were the people of Israel doing at that time? They were mixing Judaism with the Canaanite pagan uh, uh, religions. And the Bible does tell us that at one point that there were in the Temple of Solomon itself, different grottos set up for the worship of multiple deities, multiple false Canaanite deities, including Asherah, in the Temple of God. What does this prove? It proves what the Bible records for us, and that is, is that after the ancient Israelites entered the Promised Land, they did not enter the Promised Land in the 8th century B.C., but hundreds of years before that, that after they entered the promised land, as the scriptures revealed, they did not get rid of all of the peoples that God had commanded them to get rid of and kick them out of the land. As a result of it, the peoples there in the land posed a spiritual threat to them, and they're, according to the biblical, according to the biblical history in the Old Testament, what happened is, is that the children of Israel began intermarrying with the pagans, the Canaanites, and their religion got mixed up together in, you know, in one big happy um, syncretistic mess. The fact that we would find archaeological evidence that shows that there was syncretism being practiced by the Jews around the time of the 8th century is not something that should catch any of us by surprise because the Bible actually tells us that that is exactly what was going on in the 8th century B.C., during the time of Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet was one of the prophets whom God raised up to prophesy, to call Israel to repent, to put away their idols, and to return back to the true worship of Yahweh. So here, what we have, typical, this is just so typical, so typical of discovery, of the Discovery Channel, this, the people who brought us the lost tomb of Jesus a few years back, now uh, claiming that God had a wife, and the evidence that's being brought forward is 8th century B.C. evidence, which according to the Bible itself was a time when Israel was practicing syncretistically, and they were worshiping Yahweh, and they were worshiping Asherah, they were worshiping Molech, they were worshiping Dagon, they were... They were mixing all of this stuff together, and wouldn't you know it, they've actually found 8th century uh, pieces of uh, pottery and inscriptions that, that show that the syncretism was going on. And what does this um, archaeologist Stravrakapulu say? Oh, well, that proves that Yahweh had a wife. No, it doesn't. It proves that the Bible was actually a right all along regarding the history of Israel, that they slipped into syncretistic practices, stopped Stocks stopped worshiping God properly and mixed up the religions of the of Israel with the religions of uh, of the Canaanites, 
And most notably of this goes back to what? The 7th century. King Solomon and all of his wives. Yeah, um, this, this is not something that any of us should be shaking in our boots about. The way I look at it, just from an archaeological, historical, and biblical point of view, this is like, duh. Serious? What's so silly is the, is the way the story has been spun regarding these, uh, these artifacts. These artifacts actually prove that the, the, what the Bible's recorded for us is correct. There was no conspiracy to expunge Asherah out of the uh, biblical text. She was never in the biblical text. The biblical texts tell us of the one true God, who in Deuteronomy, you know, what is six four, Shemacha Israel, the, the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the Shira is not mentioned there, nor was she edited out. But the biblical narratives, historical texts in the Old Testament do tell us about Israel's syncretistic practices. And it pegs it to the 8th century as a time when that was one of the major features of Israel at the time. Otherwise, God wouldn't have raised up prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and others. He raised them up specifically to call Israel back from their syncretistic pagan practices, back to the worship of the one true God. Stav Rakapulu, yeah, this isn't scholarship. This is historical rewriting of of the biblical narrative. But the biblical narrative already told us all of this, and if you know your Bible, then you won't be suckered into believing that there was some kind of conspiracy and that Yahweh at the beginning revealed himself as having a wife. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's scholarly, it's indefensible is what it comes basically down to. And anyone, anybody with a good Bible, you know, Sunday school knowledge of the Old Testament could, would be able to see through this. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of those people left. All right, we are up on our second break, and I need to warn you again, when we come back, the sermon that we're going to be reviewing is explicit. That's the only way I can put it. And I'm reviewing it in all of its, uh, in all of its gory details because... This is what's being passed off as a form of evangelism in the church, and what goes on there at Brick City Community Church is not isolated. There are other churches who are doing exactly the same thing. So I, you know, I just warn you ahead of time, it's, it's not going to be good. That's all I can say. It's just not going to be good. There, but I'm not bleeping anything out, so keep that in mind. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith... You can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. 
of the sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. You know, I got to tell you, it's uh, sermons like this that convince me that it's just a matter of time before some enterprising, seeker-driven slash missional pastor decides that it's time to bring out the pole dancers for Jesus during the praise and worship time. Yeah, I I know that sounds cynical, but yeah, it's not hard to track the trajectory here. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Brick City Community Church, Sanford, North Carolina. The name of the sermon, All Effed Up. You just can't make this stuff up anymore. Pastor Bill May presiding. And, uh, you know, I don't even think that this needs much more of an intro. I just need to warn you, even the sermon itself on their website, when you download it, has the word explicit attached to it. And I'm not going to uh, edit it. Why? Because I shouldn't have to edit something from a church. I mean, if a Christian pastor's preaching it, we should be able to pass it along, right? And, um, yeah, anyway, let me kill the music. Without any further ado, here's Bill May, the sermon entitled All Effed Up, from the sermon series entitled That's Effed Up. Here we go. Come on, how y'all doing this morning? 
Talk to me now. Look at here. What is the deal with a word? Huh? Come on. Talk to me. What is the deal with a word? I'm sure you guys have seen by now the name of our series is All Left Up. And that video was all left up. And what was happening was all left up. And probably what's been happening to you has been all left up. I got anybody in here that can say that that's been their life for lately? Yeah, man. Isn't that, isn't that just the thing you want to say sometimes, right? I mean, it is. I mean, and, and, and sometimes we say it, and when we say it, what do we say? I'm sorry, man. I shouldn't have said that, you know? The truth is, yeah, you should, because your life is jacked up right now, man. You know, things are messed up. They're not the way you, they should be. They're not the way you want them to be. But there's something in the Word, and I'm, I'm kind of gassed about this whole series if you got um, if you got your notes, how many of you guys did not get notes? Raise your hand. I want everybody to have some notes so you got some stuff to follow along with me. Just raise your hand. We'll have, hand you one out. Cool. If everybody's got them, cool. You got some of these cards. Now listen, there ain't a church in America is going to do a series called All Left Up except Brick City Community Church. Yeah, you shouldn't be bragging because um, uh, Stephen Furtick um, beat you to the punch on this one. He did a sermon series not too long ago entitled F-Bomb. So, yeah, no, you're not the only uh, guys out there being edgy and racy, all in the name of reaching the lost. All right, so look, look you, need to, <laughs> you need to take these cars and give them to folks. Invite them. But uh, listen, don't do this. Hey, you won't go to my church? Because first thing I'm going to say is no. You know, don't do that. That's not an invitation. Here's an invitation. Invitation is, hey, man, we got a cool series we're doing called All Left Up. And they're going to go, what? Yeah, it's at our church. All yeah, the whole purpose is because this is all about reaching the lost, and he's encouraging his people in his congregation to hand out the postcards, uh, advertising their sermon series, and he wants the people in their church, hey, come to our church. We're doing a sermon series entitled "All Left Up." This is now evangelism. All left up. You got to be kidding me, right? No, I'm serious. And listen, I want you to check it out because there's some really cool stuff that, that we're talking about. And here's what I want to do. If you'll come, I'll buy you lunch. All right? I'll take you to lunch. Meet me there. Let's, let's hook up. Let's get together. Meet me there, and I'll take you to lunch. That's how you invite someone to come. All right? If you just say, hey, would you like to come to my church? They're going to more than likely say no because in their mind they got a preconceived idea about what church is all about. And in church, people don't say effed up. In church, people get kicked out for saying effed up. And so today, I have two things that I want to do today. Two things. Number one, I want to help you. If you're here today and you do not know that you matter to God yet, I want to help you get that. I want to help you understand that. I'm going to try to be as clear and as plain as possible, and I'm going to try to help you get that. And if you're in here and you have um, some idea that you can't believe that we're doing a series like effed up, then I'm probably going to know. I'm going to offend you greatly today, okay? And that's all right. People get offended all the time. People got offended at Jesus all the time. In fact, if some of... Yeah, but I can't recall a single time where people got offended at Jesus because he used foul language. Can you? You know, where Jesus was going around, you know, not cussing like a sailor, but trying to, you know, say the word without saying the words that sailors use, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't recall that. Of the hardest words he ever issued were to people called Pharisees and Sadducees. So I just want to tell you, by the end of my message, I may offend you. And if I—that's right. And if you're offended, 
by the fact that he's using the sermon series entitled All Effed Up, that means you're a Pharisee, and you don't care anything about reaching the lost. I do, it's okay. Look at your neighbor and say, it's okay if I get offended today. I promise you my offense won't tap into your bank account. It won't hurt your personal life or anything like that. It's just going to challenge you a little bit. It's good when God challenges us. And I want you to understand uh, uh, that, that this is challenging. What I'm about to talk about today and the next five weeks is challenging. But it's going to help us get a hold of who God really is so that our faith is not something that's plastic, but our faith is something that's real. And you know what the truth is? In churches, too often, there's an us and them mentality. There's this idea that somehow, some way, we are better than those who don't go to church or better than those who are down the street. And it's just not true. Because the truth be known, if every one of our lives were brought up here and put on the video screen as a, as a playback, rewind, we'd all be effed up, wouldn't we? Come on, how many of you at a certain point in your life have done something that's so effed up that you would never want anyone to know? Raise your hand. That should be everybody. If it's not, you're effed up right now. You don't even know it. <clears throat> I, I want to help you. Is, is there anyone in here 12 and under? If you are, I want you to go into the room in there. This is a PG-13 service. It's not rated R. We're not going to be showing any boobies or anything like that. But it's PG-13. All right? Now, parents, because it's PG-13, if you allow your child who's less than 12 to stay in here, you are going to have to explain what I'm explaining to you. Okay? So that's cool. All right? If we're cool on that, be cool on that. But please, do not get pissed off and leave the church. Do not get mad at me and send me an email saying, I cannot believe some of the things you say. You're, you're corrupting my kid. Because I don't want to hear that. Your kid, if they go to public school, are corrupted way worse than I did. If Here's his justification for what he's about to do. They're getting corrupted worse than this at their public school, so don't complain to me. Because what I'm doing isn't as bad as the public schools. Okay. They're on a playground. If they got neighbors, you, you know, they're looking at porn at age nine. The greatest group, listen to me, parents, the greatest group of Internet porn users in the country are 10 years old. So don't think for a moment your little Johnny or your little Sally is safe from the world. That's not the idea. The idea is not to make them safe from the world. The idea is to teach them how to overcome the world and send them out to tear darkness down. All right, and we're going to do that by teaching them darkness. Right. All right. So let's 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 get into this message and let's pray because it really would be good to do something like holy right now. Okay. <laughs> Father, I just thank you, Lord <laughs> Jesus. I did not write your book. Thank God. Thank God. You penned this, God, by the hands of human authors through divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You penned. This book we call the Bible. It is your letter to us showing us how we can live for you. And so, Jesus, I just pray that through this message, Father, if there is anything inside of us that doesn't, that is keep, I mean, if it's large stumbling block or a small stumbling block, Lord, I pray that there would be today nothing left that keeps us from accessing who you are and knowing you intimately and personally in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at your neighbor and say, hold on, it's getting ready to happen, all right? I'm getting hot in here, so I'm going to take off my shirt. 
here and show y'all the new All Effed Up shirts that I'm putting together. We have a website coming out next week called All Effed Up. It's a church prayer website. They have t-shirts and a website for this, and it's, you know, wow. And it's for, the, it's for people who don't know they matter to God to get on and share their stories and hopefully get some encouragement, right? It's going to be cool, dude. I'm watching this whole campaign. And, uh, you know, I, it's so funny because I put this stuff all on Facebook, and I'll be honest with you, crickets, baby, crickets. <laughs> I'm serious. I, pa- I post a lot of scriptures. I'll post scriptures people are like, oh, pastor, this scripture was so awesome. I love that. You know, that's what they do. I put, we're doing a new series called All Left Up. Tweet, 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 tweet. Nobody, dude, nobody. One pastor came on and said, you mean all, I mean, it's a pastor I know. He's all, you mean all filled up? Yes, I'm all filled. That is what you meant, right? I'm like, hell no. That's not what I meant. <laughs> Just the opposite. And then someone else who used to go to our church, I know, who lives, you know, out of town or whatever, he posted something on my thing and then deleted it because he felt bad about it, you know? I was like, dang, dude. Chill out, man. What is it in a word, man? What is it? Thank you, bro. What is it in a word that jacks us up, man? What is it about saying one little word? What's the difference between red and blue other than the color? The word is the word, man. One's got three letters, other's got four. It's a word. Word is a word. So let's, let's get into uh, our message today all left up. First Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Now, I'll give you some notes. And I didn't put all the scripture references on there. I just gave you, uh, I just gave you some uh, uh, references so you can go through. I didn't put the whole message of the scriptures on there. So they're, they're back here. You can watch them with me, and uh, you can go through this together. If you've got a pen, you can take notes. God, I left some blanks in there. Those blanks are not that I don't know what I'm going to say because I, I got the ones filled out in here, and they're on the screen. And you can write them in, and you can take this and study it. In fact, I got some little questions underneath it later on where you can go and, and you can really ask God to help you apply this to your life because that's important. So First Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. The Philistines now mustered, mustered, mustard their army for battle and camped between... Obviously, he knows nothing about the military. Soko in Judah and Azekah at Ephes Damem. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the Valley of Elah. All right? So uh, before we go to the next slide, let me kind of set this up. All right? Um... We have the Philistines were the enemies of the Israelites. All right? The Israelites, this is long after the Israelites are brought up out of Egypt. You know, long after God has called them his favored people and blessed them and, and delivered them from Pharaoh and told them he's going to give them a land flow of milk and honey and all this kind of stuff. And they are what is considered Israel today. All right? The Philistines make up portions of the other dudes, you know, Egypt, uh, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, all these, you know, they're kind of a mixture around there. Uh, and I didn't plan to pinpoint that out, so I'm not going <laughs> to. What? <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to get specific on it. But the bottom line was they were always at odds with uh, uh, Israel. And, and, and you guys, when I, when I go further, you're going to know this story because I'm going to talk to you about it. Verse 3, it says, So the Philistines and the Israel, Israelites faced each other 
on opposite hills with a valley between them. Now, this is the leading of the story of David and Goliath. How many of you are familiar with the story of David and Goliath? Okay, that's good. Now, Goliath was a giant, and, and a lot there were a lot of Philistines who were giants. In fact, Goliath had five brothers, and they were all giants. Now, when I say giants, I mean giants like, where's Gibbs? Gibbs, stand up. Gibbs is kind of a mini-giant compared to them. Where's Gary? Why ain't Gary in here? Go get Gary and have him sit right down next to you, okay? When Gary comes in, you'll see another giant. He was still mini-giant compared to Goliath. Goliath, I think, was over nine foot tall, had a head big as a Volkswagen, had a spear that weighed as much as a Volkswagen, and, and he was a champion. And David, in fact, when I was going through my notes, you probably can't see this, but I drew little mountains, you know, and little David with a little sling and big old Goliath with a spear. Okay, and so the deal is uh, uh, there are two hills. One on this side had the Philistines in it. So this side of the church kind of half here, you guys are going to be the Philistines, okay? Go roar for me. Okay, you all the Philistines. And, and on this side are the Israelites. Go yay for me over here, Israelites. Yeah, there you go. So that's kind of the idea that was like... And a roar. You know, it's kind of this big guy going against this little kid. David was a kid. He was, he was small. He was a kid. And he came at Goliath. The only weapon he had was a sling and a stone and all that kind of stuff. And we're not here to talk about that. What we're here to talk about is the two hills and the valley. Now, understand something here. <laughs> we're here to talk about the two hills and the valley. Okay, this is the first. I have never heard anybody preaching on this text by focusing in on the two hills and the valley. Yeah, I didn't even realize that they were major players in this biblical story until he just revealed that one. Uh, uh, the people of the Philistines camped on this side. The Israelites camped on this side, hill to hill. They were facing each other in, in, in the battle. And in the valley, there was no one there. There were no occupants. You were either on this hill or you were on this hill. There wasn't anyone kind of in the middle going, dude, I'm going to hang out. It's like pay-per-view. Sweet! You know, it wasn't happening. You were either one or the other. And, and, and a lot of times, um, you know, as, as followers of Jesus, what we do is we, we think like this. We think like God's enemies are out there and God's people are in here. It's an us and them mentality. So I had no idea that the story there of the battle lines that were drawn up between the Philistines and the Israelites was actually telling us about the pitfalls of an us-versus-them mentality. I, who knew? I mean, there was, no, there was no indicators in the text that that was what this is about, but thankfully, Bill May has discovered this in his sermon series. You know, that's what we have. What happened gives you... He's taking down the signs. Why are you taking down the signs, man? Somebody might drive by and want to see. Oh, uh, okay. That's cool. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, well, we'll have to handcuff him to you and let you drag him in here next week, okay? There you go. Sweet. All right. So here we are. Here we are. We have two hills. We have a David and Goliath and, and deal, and we have the, 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 the evil, nasty, uncircumcised Philistines. Oh, that's good. That's good. You guys did that out of cue. Oh, my gosh. You rock. 
Then we have the circumcised, holy Israelites over here. <coughs> now to finish the story, David and Goliath meet down in the valley. Goliath goes, I will, I will have you, you know, you, 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 I will kill you today. All right, that's what he says. You cannot defeat me. And David goes, God will defeat you. And he slung a sling, bam, hit him in the head, knocked him out dead. He's cold, dead. David took his sword, chopped his head off. Took Goliath's sword, chopped his head off. End of story. You know, the Israelites won the battle. It wasn't because they were super cool. It wasn't because they were mighty. It was because of God. See, the, the, the problem we have in church is that we relegate the us and them mentality. And so it's us holy people who love God and who... Hey, wait, 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 wait. You said God is the one who gave David the victory. So it sounds to me like if, I, if we're just to take the, uh, the biblical story at face value, that God is the one who is well, unwittingly keeping this whole us-versus-them mentality going. God loves us, and, and, and it's those nasty, rotten, uncircumcised Philistines that I work with, or that I live next to, or that I go around, that cuss, that smoke, and, okay, that cuss, that drink, that, that run, you know, they, they, they smoke, they chew, they run with girls who do, and, and, and they're just awful. And that's what we think. And it's so easy. It's so easy. As a pastor, or as a church member, a Christian, one who follows Jesus, it's so easy for us to say, yeah, we don't mean it, but we do. That somehow or another, my life is better. I am better than they are. We say it in how we act. We say it in how we live. In fact, I, I, I would bet you that it would be said in here, even on a Sunday morning, even Brick City. You know, if one guy came in who was dirty and stinky, who had uh, alcohol in his breath, and he sat next to you and your family, and you're like going, mm, dang, mm. and you, you know, like scoot over, you know. Next thing you know, you know, it does this week after week after week, and he looks at you and wants to be your buddy. Next thing you know, you're not coming to this church because Cat's just, he's too nasty, man. I ain't hanging around with this guy. Or, or the way someone looks, or the attitudes that people have, or the words they use. I do not want my children around such people, so I shall bring them to myself, wrap them to my bosom, and keep them in here forever. God, you people made me sick. I'm sorry. It's not my notes. should be. You see, is it me or does it sound like he's mocking parents who don't want their kids to be exposed to um, things that the Bible doesn't encourage but actually calls sins? Is is it me? I mean, and not only that, I mean, this, this 1 Samuel 17 text um doesn't at all um teach that there was something wrong with the us versus them mentality so i mean even the bible text that he's that he read for this sermon doesn't support the uh the thing that he's teaching 
the Israelites were no better than the Philistines. In fact, in many ways, the Philistines were more religious, more devoted than the Israelites. So here's the Israelites. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, you're going to need to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'll start the story at verse 19. 1 Samuel 17, verse 19. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came uh, to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give his daughter, give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. <clears throat> David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down here to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not by a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. Now when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You aren't able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when... When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. <clears throat> is there anything in this text that would indicate that this story is about um, people being divided and some one group thinking they're better than another? I mean, we just heard Bill May Talk about the, well, you know, let me back this up so that you can hear it in his own words. 
but talking about just how, you know, religious the Philistines were. Around such people, though I shall bring them to myself, wrap them to my bosom, and keep them in here forever. <laughs> ah, God, you people made me sick. I'm sorry. It's not in my notes. should be. <laughs> you see... The Israelites were no better than the Philistines. In fact, in many ways, the Philistines were more religious, more devoted than the Israelites. It, it, the problem is, is that they were worshiping false gods. And uh, Goliath was basically mocking and challenging the armies of the living God. You know, as I'm listening to Bill May here, have you all read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis? The last book is called The Last Battle. And in The Last Battle, um, it chronicles the end of Narnia. And what happens is, is that a, a, an ape, a, a really you know, crafty ape, gets a hold of a, of a lion skin and throws the lion skin on a, on a donkey on, and, uh, and basically convinces the donkey to uh, act like it's Aslan, the great Aslan. Now, the, uh, the name of the monkey, I think, was Shift, and the name of the uh, donkey was Puzzle. And what happened is, is that while this was going on, you know, the ape was the voice of Aslan, and Aslan would only make appearances at night or when the, when the light was really, really dim, and you couldn't really completely make out his form because anybody with any eyeballs would have been able to recognize that that was a donkey with a with a lion skin thrown over the top of him you know you know it, it, all it took was a little bit of clear light but what was happening was is that the um <clears throat> the monkey was making these outrageous claims and basically browbeating the the pious followers of Aslan and saying things that they would say well that that, that we don't we don't remember Aslan being like that or wanting us to do such things and and then he would browbeat this this guy sounds like a shift that that character from the last battle mocking and saying these things that ought not to be said against Christians and at, at this point he's holding up the Philistines as moral ethical religious people this is this is outrageous what we're hearing here so here's the israelites were years ago they're in egypt they're in absolute bondage and slavery and God delivers them out of Egypt, brings them out of Egypt, delivers him by his mighty hand, tells him, I'm going to take you to a land full of milk and honey. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I don't know about you, but I'd be like, yeah, man, me and Jesus, whoop, mm-hmm, my boy. And you know what I mean? What did they do? Did they follow God all the time? Heck no. They, they got pissy and moany. They complained half the time. They didn't want nothing to do with God. They went their own way. The Bible calls them, God himself called them stiff-necked and rebellious. So why were they so good if they weren't so good? Because God's favor was on them. Because he saved them. He redeemed them. God could have very easily done the same with the Philistines. But he chose not to. It's not that the people over here are any better than the people over there. You know, one of the hardest things they had to come to grips with in the New Testament was the fact that Philistines could actually be just like the Jews. They freaked on that, dude. The Pharisees, the religious people said, you've got to be kidding me. 
You mean a Gentile. Gentiles were hated. They were detested. They're even more were the half-Jews, half-Gentiles. They were like, they were treated like derelicts, man. You see, the truth is, we're no better than the people here, over here. We're no better than them. We're no better in here than the people who aren't here, the people who were last night in the bars, the people who last night were having, were, you know, having like crazy sex without, you know, with like bunches of people, the people who were smoking weed all night last night, the people who were robbing gas stations or killing someone. We're no better than those people. Well, okay, I mean, I don't really necessarily want you to come up here and kill me or anything like that. You know, I, that's like a preference of mine. But the truth is, I'm no better than them. What makes me think that I'm somehow better than them? And how can I rate my sin or rate my behavior and say that somehow or another I've attained to a level that they haven't met? Because the truth is, man, my life is all effed up. This ain't working. Hold on. Anytime I start looking at someone else and thinking that my life is somehow... Gary, come on in, man. Come on, sit over here with, with Gibbs. Come on over here. There you go. This is the other cousin of Goliath. Little cousin. <coughs> Excuse me, I, I've got this cold and I should have coughed, but then I didn't. Sorry. So the truth is, we're no better than anyone else. If Jesus had not come into our lives and delivered us from ourselves, we wouldn't be anything different from anybody else. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm just the same as you are. Look at your other neighbor and say, they're just the same as I am. There's no difference. No difference at all. So what I want to help us understand today is I want to help us, and, and I, I'm going to make a huge assumption. Hope, hopefully it's not true. I mean, I, I'd like to see people in here who are really not sure where they stand with Jesus. And, and, and if, you're, if that's you, then I just want you to kind of follow along with me. But I, I know I've seen some of the folks who've come in, and I know a lot of people in here. And so I'm going to kind of talk. I'm going to try to talk to both sides here, those who, who, who really understand what following Jesus is all about and those who aren't really sure yet. So I'm going I'm to talk to both of you guys, and let me help you. But I want to help you understand that when Jesus comes into our heart, when we actually receive him, there is no effort that's done on our own. It's not like we earned something or we, uh, we, we lived our life in such a way that we attained a, a level where God said, okay, now I'll give you something. Uh, we, we are just as wicked as everyone else is. God saw fit to come and touch our heart and change us. And then we recognized our need for him, and we cried out for him, and we said, Jesus, come into my life. And what did we say? Save me. We didn't come reward me. We didn't say make me you know, a little better than I already am. We said save me. Deliver me because I am wretched, I am messed up, I am effed up, and I need you to save me. What did he save us from? Let me give you four things he saved us from real quick. The first thing he saved us from is the power of sin. That's the first thing he saved us from, the power of sin. Now, let me explain this a little bit, the power of sin. What do you mean, Bill? The power of sin. You mean to tell me that people who are, are, are saved by Jesus no longer sin? No, that's not what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is, 
If you have received Jesus as your Savior, the work that He did on the cross broke the power of sin in your life, meaning there is no sin that holds over you that you don't want to hold over you. Okay, I want to point out something. Um, What passage is he preaching from now? He's just making all these assertions, these uh, statements, but he's not drawing them from the texts of the Scriptures. He's just saying them. Where does the Bible say this? That's my question. Uh, Some of you go, I just been doing this all my life. I try to break free from this one little thing and I just can't. Because you don't want to. There is power. The cross is all powerful and it has broken the power of sin in your life. You know, and you say, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. You mean to tell me that 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 before I was powerless to sin? Absolutely, you were powerless powerless to sin. That's what the Bible says in Romans chapter six. It says, "Once you were a slave to sin, now you're a slave to righteousness. Once you were an instrument in the hands of the enemy, now choose to give yourself as an instrument in the hands of God." There's a choice here. Uh, no, Romans six actually points to a present reality. Let's take a look at the passage since. You, you mean you, you took the time to actually reference it in passing, but you didn't actually read it? Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. So it's not talking about a choice. It's talking about our baptisms. We continue. So at one point in time in your life, before you received Jesus, you had no power over sin. You didn't even, some of you, me, didn't even care about sin. Now, some of you might have been like, you know, like there might have been a day in your life when you were in the middle of sowing your oats. (laughs) Like you never say, where'd you sow your oats? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you were in the middle of sowing your little oat bag, <laughs> doing your little thing, burning your candle at 85 ends, getting on with it, you know what I'm saying? Effing things up really good. You were in the middle of doing all this, and you thought to yourself, I've got to quit. I've got to quit. Just one more time. <laughs> right? You did that, right? You had no power over sin. You didn't even care. I mean, if you did care, it was a fleeting thought, and your friends looked at you and said, the heck's wrong with you, man? Come on. <laughs> you know? But as someone who's received salvation from God, they have been delivered and they now have power over sin. Does that mean we don't sin? Of course not, man. We sin all the time. Again, it's our choice to sin. So you need to understand that. You need to recognize that Jesus saved us from the power of sin. If he did not save us from the power of sin, then the cross is not all-powerful. You see, the truth is, we struggle with it every day, don't we? Those of us who are 
philosophy at this point. Uh, nope, he's not actually preaching any text. Followers of Jesus who've received the goodness of God, we struggle with it every day. We sin all the time, dude. We sin all the time. You know, we do. Remember the last time you sinned? How many of you remember the last time you sinned? You know why it's fresh in your mind? Because it's probably today. <laughs> we sin all the time, man. And Jesus delivers us from the power of sin. We have risen above the law because the law has been fulfilled on our behalf. But even though we have, here and now we struggle with it. Paul talked about it in Romans chapter 7. He said, I don't understand what it is. I, everything I detest I do. And the thing that I want to do, I can't do. If, he, said, he said, every time I try to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. Romans chapter 7. The latter verses 21 through 25. And that seems to happen to us. We always, we always try. We have good intentions, don't we? My boss, you know my boss in my old company, he used to tell me, he used to come to me, and I'd come into work, dude, I was plastered, freaking plastered. Oh my God, and I'm standing there, I just want to, I come in late because I'm like, I'm, I mean, you know, come on, dude, you saw, he, here was one of his saying, he said, you saw, stay up all night with the turkeys, you can't soar with the eagles, and, and he was right, because I couldn't, dude, I was like, huh. and I ran blueprints, man, that's what I did, I, I ran blueprints, and if you've ever done this before, you take this, uh, this paper that's light sensitive, and, and, and you have this machine, and the, um, there, it has ammonia in it, <laughs> holy crap, and the ammonia activates. I can't believe this guy is a Christian pastor. It's the stuff, the light burns away all the stuff that's not, that, that's, that's not covered with a black line, and then the ammonia activates the yellow lines and turns them blue. And so I'm in there, and I'm like, I'm like just, you know, I loved running blueprints. Do you know why? Because I had a table right here, and I had a machine right here, and I did this. And I was the professional expert blueprint or no one could run prints faster than me i had a system dude i could i could roll it out dude well it was when i was not hung over or something anyway i'm like doing this man and i know I, I, I am moving slow dude and i'm like please hope the boss is not here the big not the not my boss the big boss like please hope my boss is not here please god please i'll do anything no i won't do that but i'll do anything else and I'm doing the thing, and then here, here he comes. He's standing behind me. He doesn't even knock. He comes in and silently stands behind me for a while. And I feel his presence. And I look, and I go, okay. <laughs> so he walks over on the other side of the table, and he looks at me. And he says, son, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Then he turns that right and walks out. I want to punch him, man. Like, dude, you don't even know the road I was on last night. I'll come over this table and kick your butt right up in here. You know, crazy. I wasn't going to do that, right? <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Before I met Jesus, all I had was good intentions. The Philistines, good intentions. <laughs> good intentions. So you no one wants to be a Philistine now. Like, <laughs> the Philistines had good intentions. And where in the text does it say the Philistines had good intentions? Unbelievable. The road to hell is not paved with good intentions. The road to hell is just the road to hell. 
and those who are on it are on it, and they're helpless to get off unless a Savior comes and delivers them and takes them off. And that's what Jesus did when he came, when, he, when God came to earth and lived 33 years on this earth, fulfilling, fulfilling all the requirements of the law, and then taking the cross for your shame, for my shame, for your sin, for my sin. And At least he has some kind of understanding of the gospel, and he even has some understanding of salvation by grace. But this is one convoluted theological mess. Dying that act by one man who is God, who is man, that one thing changed everything. Now, good intentions, it doesn't matter about a good intention. The truth is, I have good intentions now. It's not good intentions that cause me to overcome. It is Jesus Christ that causes me to overcome. It's Jesus Christ that causes you to overcome. It's Jesus Christ that causes them to overcome. And the minute we forget that it's the power of the cross that breaks sin, that's the minute something sets in that's killing us, and we don't even know it. I'm going to get to it in a moment. Next point. The second thing we're saved from is a meaningless life. Because the truth is, living with good intentions all day long, trying to do everything you can to earn God's favor and do whatever you can is meaningless. Working 9 to 5, 10, 8 to 5, 8 to 8, day after day for a little portfolio, only to have the government take it back or the economy to kill it, to get a, to do this, to do that, to, to have this, to have this pleasure, to have that pleasure. It all ends up empty inside because there's a hole in our heart. It's a God-sized hole, and he's the only one that can fill it. And by the way, yeah... Doesn't matter if an ancient church father is the one who made such a statement. The Bible actually doesn't talk about that, that God-sized hole. Yeah, no, we're all dead in trespasses and sins and rebellious against God, and by nature we are objects of God's wrath. Solomon, the wisest man on the earth, wrote in Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 3, these are the words of the teacher King David's son who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Nothing. Nothing. Your works get you nothing. Let me ask you a question. What are you doing or what have you done that will last a hundred years? That's a good question to ask yourself. In any endeavor that you're in, you should ask yourself, what impact is this going to have on anyone? And will it last? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, the Bible tells us this, God saved you by His grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. We can't boast about salvation. We can't boast about the fact that now we don't do the things we used to do because the truth is when you, when you experience power over sin, then all of a sudden your life starts changing. I mean, I can, I can rewind my life back to a point and see the hand of God in my life. I can re, in fact, my wife can see it. And I can see it in her. We can see God's workmanship in our life. We can see God changing us. His grace and His mercy. We can see that. You know? But I didn't do it. Jesus did it. The Holy Spirit himself ministering to me, working in me the, the, the good will and the, pleasure, the good pleasure of God and his will and changing me on the inside out as I surrender my life 
more and more and more and more to Jesus. That's what happens. So he says, you've been saved, and it's not by the things you did. It was by grace that you've been saved. But why? Why have we been saved? Verse 10, for we are God's masterpiece. That is an absolute correct translation of that word. Look at your neighbor and say, you are a masterpiece. No worry laughing, Gary. That's cool, man. <laughs> it's hard to think, isn't it? It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that you're God's masterpiece. It is. But if you will allow Jesus to change you, if you allow His Holy Spirit to work inside of your life by surrendering and saying, you know, not my will but your will, then you will be made into the very image of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what the Bible tells us. I, you know, I was going to leave this whole series out with this scripture, and that's Romans 8:28. For God causes all effed up things. That was effed up was my. I inserted that in there. For God causes all effed up things. The Bible says bad things. The Bible, the, God causes, that's the first thing. You know, it's kind of ap- appropriate right now because I'm reading the book of Job. And, and Job got nailed by Satan, but God had his hand in it. God was in control, and God's blessing was on the other side of his trial. And he didn't realize it. He didn't see it. His friends didn't see it either. See, we always think in the middle of our trial there's something wrong with us, that we've done something wrong, but it's not. It's God is shaping us and forming his character in us. Because the Bible says in Romans 8.28, because God causes all things that are bad to work for good to those who love him and are called. And that word called is not, is not you know, God looked out and saw, and saw uh, t- Paul and saw Paul and said, hey, hey. Paul is, yeah, superstar, want him on my team, hits three-pointers, can dunk, can double dribble everything around. He's the man. I'm going to choose Paul because he's the man. That's not what God does. That's not what God does. God sees the potential in us that's not there because he sees Jesus, the hope of glory. And so so we are created in God because Romans 8, 28 The the logical jumps that this guy makes. Yeah, I mean, oh, wow. It says, for God causes all things that are bad for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, that they would become like Jesus. So you have a destiny tonight, today. See, that's effed up, isn't it? You have a, it's so dark, I think it's night. You have a destiny today and tomorrow and the next month and the next month, and that is to become like Jesus. And the Holy Spirit works that in us. So we are God's workmen. We are God's masterpiece. He has, watched this, He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do what? Well, come on, come on, come on, come on. I'll lull you to sleep. Okay, let's start back over. So we can do the what? That's good. That's good. Even the Philistines got that. Watch this. So that we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. The Bible says the good things, another translation, that he foresaw, foreknew, foreplanned before the beginning of time. So before time began, God saw your life and saw the potential that you would have with him, and he wrote in his book things you are to do and accomplish for him. 
So your life goes from one of meaningless life of unending day after day working for nothing to a God-sized hole being filled in your life and being used by the hands of the master to, to, to do things that will last for eternity. That's amazing. So God delivers us from the power of sin. He delivers us from a meaningless life. The third thing we're saved from, and this is a good thing. I wish he would save us from bad pastors who really are not qualified to be pastors. Is the wrath of God. Look at your neighbor and say, oh, God saved you from hell. Come on, do it again. Do it for me now. God saved you from hell. That's a good thing, isn't it? I don't think a lot of people are going there. Heaven, that is. It's a good thing to be saved from hell, isn't it? Okay, I'm still close. I'm closing in on this, Jesse. It's a good thing to be saved from hell, isn't it? Does everyone in here believe in hell? Yeah. I'm not so convinced. Maybe Rob Bell is sitting in the audience. Because it took me three times for people to go, oh, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. So remember I told you, there's no valley, dude. There's no, you know what, i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to choose not to believe in God, and I'm going to choose not to believe in heaven and not to believe in hell. Therefore, it won't ever happen for me. Sorry, that is not the way it works. Either one or the other. Jesus says, you're either for me or you're against me. And that's the way things are. Now listen, God is going to send people to hell. Are you listening to me? People are going to go. It's not that God looks out and goes, ah, da, 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 there's Brian. Hey, Brian, you suck. You're going to hell. It's not like that. You see, Brian is on the same road we all were. We're all marching down a path called hell. We're all headed there. And God chose some to be vessels to receive His grace and His forgiveness. And He chose to pass over some others. That's a deep theological truth that I just told you. If you want to know more about it, you can go refer back to the series doctrine where we talked about all that theological stuff. Understand, man, the wrath of God is real. Hell is real. And Jesus says, I don't want anyone to perish. He says, God sent, my, God sent me so that no one would have to go to hell, so that the world would be saved. It is God's hope, and it is God's, it's God's intention that we would all be saved, but some won't because they won't receive. They won't choose. They won't cross from this side over to this side. They won't do it. They've decided to become hostile to God, to become enemies with God. And some of you go, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really. God's cool, man. Jesus all right. He's like my buddy. He's like the Jesus thing. I'm, I'm all right with that. I'm not an enemy of God. Well, there's two types of enemies. There are hostile enemies, and then there are enemies that are just indifferent. They're not necessarily hostile. They're just not with you. But they're enemies nonetheless. There's only, there's only one dividing line between those who are enemies of God and those who are friends of God, and that is Jesus Christ on the cross. And the only way you can get from this side to this side is to get down on your knees and go through the little door at the bottom of that cross, humbling yourself before God and saying, yes, I receive you, and moving into the kingdom of God. That's the only way there. It's not about good. I, I'm... I'm glad we hear the gospel a few times in this sermon. It's convoluted, and yet it's—despite the fact that uh, I'm thoroughly disgusted by what this man is doing, uh, 
as far as his teaching and the the subject matter and the sermon series title, I got to give him props for this. I've heard him mention the gospel far more times than I hear the normal average seeker driven pastor do it, which is rarely if ever. Good works. In fact, it's not about anything that could be considered as holy. Jesus said that uh, 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 that your righteousness are like filthy rags, and the actual interpretation is a used tampon. I know I just grossed a lot of people out. Actually, you didn't seem that shocked. It's like, oh, okay. Either that or the smoothies had something to put you to sleep. I don't know. But that's what the Bible says that our righteousness is like. Yes, it does. It's like, and, and, and the Bible describes righteousness as a robe. You know, that's why. Yes, it does. When, you, when they talk about Jesus coming, they talk about him having a, a robe, a white robe, the white beard flowing. And you see all this holiness and, you know, the kingship of the, and, and all this stuff and, and so just imagine someone like coming to heaven, you know, <laughs> never <laughs> going through that little door. You know, stand before God, go, hey, man, I'm ready to get in, Jesus. I got my rights to this own dog. You know, it's like it's like this jacket with a bunch of used Kotex all over, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> Actually thinking like it's good. People like dogs are like sniffing all around. You're like going, gross, man, you stink, dog. No, dude, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looking foolish. Pants on the ground, you know, stuff like that. Some of you go, you know, that's just not fair that God would send people to hell. I think it's pretty stinking fair. If all of us would sit for a moment, just reflect on our lives, we would find at least one instance in our life where we deserve to go to hell. (laughs) Just one, huh? (laughs) <laughs> you know, as convoluted as this is, he's more biblically faithful regarding the doctrine of hell than Rob Bell. I mean, if we were honest with ourselves, we're brutally honest with ourselves. We go, yeah, that, that's a hell. That that one, that one was hell. <laughs> Every sin is hell. Every sin earns you hell. You see, the Bible says in Second Peter three nine. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. See, God is patient with us. He's patient with the world, and he's patient with all of us saying, I want you to be saved. I want you to come to me. I want you to escape the wrath and enter into the presence of the, of the Lord Forever, for all eternity. So, so God saves us. He saves us from the power of sin. He saves us from a meaningless life. And he saves us from the wrath of God. And the last thing God saves us from is he saves us from religion. Look at your neighbor and say, are you a Pharisee? I look at that same person again and say, we're going to find out if you are. Now, the next five minutes of my message 
are probably going to be some of the most offensive minutes that this church has ever experienced. And I want you to be honest with yourself, and I want you to be honest with that person who's sitting next to you. Because I'm going to ask you a question at the very end of this, and I want you to honestly answer. And if your answer is, yes, I was offended by that, then I want you to take that, and I want you to go to the cross with it and ask God why. Don't ask me. Just ask Him. I've already had my own. I want you to understand something. I'm, the, I'm as big of a Pharisee as anyone in this freaking room. And God has spent the last seven years of my life beating the Pharisee out of me. But I want you to understand something. It's a little bitty thing that gets in us. When we came, the first day we came to Jesus, when we kneeled down and we said, God, come save me for I'm a wretched sinner. I mean, you might not use those words, but in your heart is what you said. I'm a wretched sinner. God, come save me. I need your forgiveness. I need you to save me. If that, you know, that day you were pure. But every day after that, you've been fighting a battle. And it's a battle with this fourth thing, religion. Did Jesus forgive all of our sins, every one of them? <sighs> the Bible says in Philippians 3, 4 through 10, and I'm going to read the scriptures to you, and then I'm going to break down a verse, and then hopefully if there's anyone left, I'll finish the sermon out. All right. Now I want you to understand who wrote this verse. The man who wrote this verse's name was Paul. He wasn't originally Paul. He was originally Saul. But Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus in a, in a vision, and he was blinded by God. And then a man named Ananias came and prayed for him, and the blinders fell off. And Paul was then changed, uh, Saul was then changed to Paul, and, and he was radically delivered. Saul was a Pharisee. He was the greatest of Pharisees. He was righteous, and he was zealous. And he's, he goes on to explain the qualifications he had to meet for someone who's good. And I want you to get this in the context of when it was written. So Paul says in Philippians 3, 4, verses four, 3, 4 through 10, he says, Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. So if you're in here this morning and you're thinking that you are righteous, that somehow, some way, God only had to save you from a little bit of stuff, if you've ever looked at someone else and go, dude, their life is effed up, I'm so glad I never went down those roads, then you've already started judging yourself versus others. Are you listening to me? Mm -hmm. He says in verse 5, he goes through the qualifications. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. A real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law, of which there were over 1,600 commandments. This man, Paul, the Pharisee, memorized the entire Old Testament and the oral tradition that went along with it. Not just the scripture, but the commentary. He memorized it as a Pharisee. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. 
Saul, the Pharisee, there was a man named Stephen who was anointed as a deacon. They laid hands on him, and Stephen went out and was doing some awesome things for God, and they pulled Stephen aside, and they crucified Stephen. Saul was there and watched. And after this event was over, the Pharisees came and laid their cloaks at the feet of Saul, claiming him to be the king of all Pharisees. In other words, he would be in today's arena the Pope, right? The holiest person on the planet. <laughs> I remember a passage in Scripture that talks about not letting somebody who is recent to the faith ascend to leadership. <laughs> Uh, this is just killing me. It's such a mess. I mean, there's some good things in here, and it's all mixed up with some really, really bad off things. It's just making me crazy. Not that the Pope is the holiest person on the planet. I'm trying to help you understand the context of how people saw this man, Saul, who became Paul. He said, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church and asked for righteousness. I obeyed the law without fault. Now, before we move on, I want to help you understand something about Paul. Paul writes in one of his six books that he wrote of the Bible, he writes in one of those books that he had a, a sin issue in his life. In fact, he said to God, please take this thing from me, this thorn in my flesh is what he called it. And, and and God said, no, I will not do that. He asked him three times, no. No, no one's really sure what that thorn in his flesh was. I'm not sure how you came to the idea that it was a sin problem. Some people think that it had to do with uh, an eye disease that he had. <sighs> we continue. I will not do that. And this is what God said to Paul. He said, in your weakness... My strength will be perfected. A moment ago, I talked about power over sin. There are some of you that have an issue in your life, a sin issue in your life, that you will never, ever, ever see total victory over. You may see areas where things do good. You may see turnarounds, but you will always be hounded by this one area in your life. And it's because in your weakness, his strength is made perfect. If you were made too holy, too fast, you wouldn't be able to see the need for the cross while you're here. Let me say that one more time. If you were made too holy, too fast, you would not see the need for the cross while you're on earth. Chapter and verse, please. That's why in this gathering, there are people who are really, really, really tied up with Jesus. I mean, they really seek in him with all their heart. They've laid down tons of things in their life. They've surrendered, and God has done amazing things in their life. And then there are other people in here, and, and, and those of, who, of us that I just described, we look at them and we go, holy crap, they're reading their horoscope on Facebook. I ain't hanging out with them. My kid will not play with their kid. That's because you, you don't get it. You have fallen prey to the very sin that Paul dealt with. His sin, what was Paul's sin? Religion. That was his sin. It was the thing that plagued him, was being religious. 
Verse 7. Actually, it's self-righteousness. The religion he practiced made him exalt in his own self-righteousness. That's what Pharisees were. They were people who had confidence in their own righteousness. He says, I once thought that these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith, not works. I added the not works there. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead, which comes, by the way, through humility. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, I want to suffer with Him, sharing in His death. Now, I'm going to pull a scripture out of here. I've got to follow this because I don't know the next. Go ahead to the next one, Tom. There we go. I'm going to pull this scripture out. Now, I want you guys to say the word that's in yellow with me on three. One, two, three. Garbage. It's a very difficult word for Bible scholars to translate. In fact, if you look through different translations, NIV, uh, New American Standard, or King James, New King James, they all have trouble with this issue. They have trouble with this word. The New American Standard calls this word rubbish. Say rubbish with me. They call it rubbish. The Greek word, don't change it yet, Tom. Well, maybe you can. Change it. Change it. Change it. There it is. The Greek word, I can't say Greek because I, I don't speak it. The Greek word is, is in English, is pronounced scubula. Say, say that with me on three. One, two, three. Okay, say it again. One, two, three. Now say it with real passion. One, two, three. Now say it five times real hard. One, two, three. Scubala, 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 scubala. Not wise to do considering what scubalon means. <sighs> now look at your neighbor and smile real big and say, scubala, baby. If we were in a lot of, a group of Greek-speaking people, we would have just cussed them. Yep. You did it, not me. You said it, not me. Well, I did say it, but you said it too. Look at your neighbor say, I just cussed in church. Come on, dude. Do it again. Look at your neighbor and say, I just cussed in church. Now before I go to the English translation, I want to help you understand something. It's important as a pastor to interpret the Scripture correctly, is it not? It, 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 would, be a, it would be a travesty if I did not 
help you understand the true meaning of Scripture. I mean, that is part of my job, to help you understand the true meaning of Scripture. Because it's only when we understand the true meaning, and, and it's not just necessarily the word, because we have a, a, a language gap, a language barrier. It's to understand the connotation of the word. It's to understand the importance of the word as it was spoken. Do you know that religious sex... Not sex, S-E-X, but S-E-C-T-S, S-E-C-T-S, sex, it's so cold I can't even say it, but anyway, have broken off from Christianity because of a, a little, a little iota. You see over that little, looks like a little U? That's an iota. Yes, the, uh, you're talking about the Council of Nicaea, uh, where they were debating whether or not Jesus Christ was the same substance as God the Father, or like substance. The difference between homoousius and homoousius. The difference between the two words, one iota. They have, they have broken off. Uh, 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 Christians believe that Jesus is God. Uh, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses spawned off in, in, in the Council, Council of Nicaea in, in 325 A.D., spawned off the Arians. <laughs> I am so sorry. Oh, man. the jo- <laughs> I just want you all to know, the Jehovah's Witnesses don't have their origin <laughs> prior to the Council of Nicaea. The Jehovah's Witnesses are an American 19th century phenomenon and uh, you know that's where they they begin, but they revive the Arian heresy. Oh man! From a man who disagreed with the iota that was over a letter, which indicated Jesus was God, and they say Jesus is a son of God, one of the sons of God. The entire Jehovah's Witness religion was built around a word. And the importance of that word. It's important for the word to be right. Is that not true? So what I'm going to do for you right now, ladies and gentlemen, is I'm going to read for you. I'm going to reread this verse, and I'm going to use the correct English word that no Bible translation will use for this verse. Yes. Please don't. Please, please, please don't. Oh, man. Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing. Oh, wait a minute. Stop right there. Stop. Go back, Tom. I want you to understand something. Paul penned this under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It was not Paul writing. It was God. These words are holy. Actually, it was both. God the Holy Spirit carried Paul along writing these things. Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. God breathed these words using the pen of Paul. Holy. Go back. Yes, everything else is worthless compared to Christ. Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as... Okay, I changed my mind. Can't play it. I bleeped it out. Yeah, but it is what you thought it was. So that I could gain Christ. What did that feel like? What did that feel like? How did it affect you?
When you study the Greek of this word scubula, you understand that not only does it mean human desecration, but it is also has the same vulgarity as the English word. And that's what Paul wrote. Because he disdained religion so much. He said, no, he disdained his own righteousness. He saw it for what it was. He saw his own self-righteousness under the law as scubalon. That all the things that I earned are So I throw them away. Now, I don't know how many of you right now are going to come back next week. I just want you to understand something. We need to recognize what's inside of us. Because Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, 6, he said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They were religious people who had religious rules, who held to their religious rules, those in whom Jesus blasted day after day after day. It was the Pharisees who killed Jesus. He blasted them day after day after day by telling them you have the laws and you read the laws and you study the laws, yet you do not honor the spirit of the law. You know, let me tell you something. We're moving forward. This church is moving forward. We're not here to pacify those who are just offended by that statement. We're here to help you recognize that God's power and His Spirit are greater than a word. And religion has no place in relationship. And if you want to honestly come before Jesus, then you have to evaluate yourself based on what it felt like to hear that word in this setting. I told you it was PG-13. You glad you took the kids out? How are you going to explain? The pastor said a nasty word at church on Sunday. How are you going to explain that? Why don't you interpret the Bible to them? You don't have to use the vulgarity if you don't want to. I used it to help make a point, to help show you exactly what you feel like. Now, let me ask you, turn to that neighbor that you looked at earlier, and I want you to give them an honest opinion without me looking or listening. That offended me, yes or no. Do it. Was that no because you didn't say it? Was that no because uh, it was cool to say no at Brick City? Honest. I said, give an honest evaluation. Because the truth is, I had to prepare for this message, and I had to stand up here on this stage, and I had to say it. And I had to, I had to go to God myself and say, God, what is in me that would keep me from saying this word, even though it is as true in Scripture as the word heaven, as the word prayer, as the word love, as the word Jesus? 
What, what in me would keep me from reading your word, accurately pointing out exactly what it says? Because the connotation is this. Paul says, the religion I had was worthless. I don't know how many of you carry around the bag of what you dropped out this morning, but Paul said, I am not doing it. And the truth is, when we live lives that are us and them, that's exactly what we're doing. We might as well take it, put it in a little scooper, put it in a bag, staple it to our vest, and walk around all day and say, here's my religion. What kind of religion are the people who in this city need Jesus? What are they going to see in us? Are they going to see the kind of religion that's based on rules and regulations and write this and that and do's and don'ts? Are they going to see a religion that's based around clinging to the cross and saying, Jesus, come and save me? What are they going to see? Only you can answer that question. And the only way you can answer that question is to honor. This is not a proper understanding of law and gospel and then what the Christian, what the, what the role of the law is in the Christian life. Ugh. This guy knows just enough to be dangerous, and, uh, and yet he's obviously not qualified to be teaching the Scriptures. Honestly, go before Jesus and tell him, Dude, I'm effed up, and I need your help. Let me pray for us. Father, I just... Done. <clears throat> yeah, I'd, I don't think there's any words that I could give at this point that's going to help that thing land on its feet. But the reality is this. Bill May is a type. He is a type of pastor, and we're getting more and more of these types of pastors. Many times they're church planters. Many times they're the guys who are brought in to help make the church grow. What they lack in a proper understanding of the Scriptures, they more than make up for it in creativity and a zeal and a passion for reaching the lost. We should never fault them for their zeal and passion to reach the lost. It's commendable. And I have to give them credit again. I heard more gospel and a clearer defense of the, of the doctrine of hell than I read even in Rob Bell's book. And yet at the same time, it's clear that Pastor May is winging it. He has a lot of zeal, but he doesn't have a proper understanding of the Scriptures. And he's not qualified, really, to be a pastor. Pray for men like Bill May and pray for Brick City Community Church. Pray for the church at large as we continue to get more and more and more of these types of pastors and the ones who are actually doing the job that the Scriptures call them to do are being driven out and replaced with these types of guys. Pray for the church. These are not good days. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. You know how to support us. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. We've got two friendly yellow buttons there. You know what to do. Or if you'd like to make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? 
I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.